Hey, what's up? How's it going, everybody? It's uh, June 27th, 2021. This is Tangential Advisory Podcast, Episode 8. I'm Neil. Are you sure it's Episode 8, or is it Episode 8 again? It's Episode 8 yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, I just time. uploaded uh, Episode 7, so... Oh, okay. Then yeah. it is 8. Indeed. Keeping me on my toes as well as our listeners. Uh, that's Neil. I'm Scott. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> Tenkai points out podcast tag first playthrough, but it is the first playthrough of episode eight. <laughs> that's right. Actually, that that's a good that's a good thing to point out. I wish uh, there are certain tags that would tie directly to like the category you're in. This is certainly not going to be a no spoiler uh, casual playthrough, episode. though, for sure. Oh, casual, yeah, definitely. Uh, what are we if not casuals? Bam, and it's IRL. Mm-hmm. No backseating on the podcast, guys. Guys, shouldn't you talk about video games? No backseating. <laughs> Get out of here. We're still on food topics. I uh, I went to Hastings, Nebraska, yesterday for like a Which quick. It, where it's where my your family is from. Yeah, it's where my mom and uh, step stepdad live. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, while I was there, like, so I, I drove down. It's like a two and a half hour drive. And it was mm-hmm. basically to see see my mom uh, and my dog before I started work back up since my three week vacation is over after today. What kind of dog do you have? Uh, it's a toy poodle. So, oh, cute. Um, now, uh, what, what do you think I did while in Hastings? A town you of twenty four thousand people. You visited the Kool Aid uh, Museum. Is is that Hastings? Yeah, it is. I I just okay. it just occurred to me. Uh, I think Kool Aid Days is in, is in August, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. So you're telling me you went to Hastings, Nebraska, and did not go to the Kool Aid Museum? Nope. It's not even like the actual birthplace. Oh, the guy I, that I made Kool Aid. <laughs> Was, is somewhere in it, like it happened in Iowa, and then they moved to Hastings afterwards. I mean, who you know, I obviously would recommend moving out of Iowa at any point in I don't know, But to aside. Nebraska is a pretty wild move. But I, I drove two and a half hours to go and eat Wendy's. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, was it good? Yeah, it was fresh, it was never good. frozen uh, beef patties. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, I mean, I didn't have the, the hamburger now that I realized it. I should have. Uh, the, the one alarming thing is that, like, obviously, nowadays, like, restrictions for masks and stuff are basically completely gone in, in Nebraska. But, like, in Ooh. Omaha, I still see, like, I would say maybe 50 to 60% of the people walking around and stuff wearing masks when they go into establishments, when they go into restaurants, when they go into uh, grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera. And Hastings, mm-hmm. I didn't see a single mask anywhere. Yeah. No one had them on. No one. Yeah, we've we've returned to normal, Neil. The pandemic is over. Everything's fixed. We're good to go. There is some team at the the World uh, College World Series, College World Series, that had to bow out. That like uh, that you know uh, had their postseason end because they couldn't field enough players because they all had uh, a, a sudden illness. And and the worst part is that if you were if you had been fully vaccinated before the tournament, you wouldn't even be tested ever. So that means that 
there were enough people on the team that did not get vaccinated and hence tested and, and then tested positive. Yeah. Yeah. And that was your team that you had winning it all, right? Yep. Yep. So that bet's gone. Okay. I have to go back to work. Uh, you know, they were in the semifinals. I was pretty sure uh, I, I wasn't going to have to work after I won that bet, but too bad. Bummer. That is a big bummer. I Gizlik says I entered the electronics store with a mask on and I was asked to put a mask on. Wait. Huh. Are are you the guy that's famous on TikTok for having a mask that looks like their face? I don't know if you've seen that before. I've I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, there's there's both the just face like mask where it looks just like your face and then I've also seen one where it is a print where it looks like the mask is hanging under your chin. Uh, but it's all part of the print. So it's covering your nose and mouth, but then it looks like your nose and mouth are still uncovered or just your nose. And that's, it's both funny, but also just like, it feels still a little, it it feels like a joke at the expense of uh, people who have, I think, a fair reason to be concerned or nervous about it. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's essentially like a prank that puts other people in a, like a, a, a in a tough situation or like a nervous situation yeah. it's like haha it's actually a squirt gun i wasn't going to shoot you <laughs> right and you're like relieved that it's a squirt gun but also someone just made you uh, think you were about to be shot so are you going to take it uh are you going to take it pleasantly probably not have you uh have you seen the uh, TikToker, I think, or whatever, person, Instagram maybe, where the woman painted a mask on her face? No. And so, no, I like, have not. It, it, it essentially was painted on to be like a, a blue, one of those blue generic surgical masks. And, mm-hmm. uh, like, she obviously couldn't, like, really open her mouth or anything when she went through the register at a store because if she did, then the gig was up. But That's right. At, at least as far as the video looked, it looked like she made it through all the way, like Jeez. through the line. But then I think she got in trouble afterwards because, I mean, obviously she was posting a video of her breaking like the laws of whatever country she was in at that point in time. So, uh, interesting. But, anyways, uh, what have you been up to, Scott? Um, let's see, Neil. I've got a couple things. I am probably 30 pages away from finishing a big like sci-fi book that I was loaned called Seven Eves. It's pretty good. I feel like maybe I had very uh, like vaguely brought it up on a previous episode, uh, potentially up to a month back. It's really good. It is this sort of three-part or three-act structure uh, hard science fiction novel by... Neil Stevenson, who is known for um, being a fairly prolific uh, science fiction writer, I believe he's I believe he's won some like Hugo Awards, maybe been nominated for some Nova Awards as well. Um, it's really good. It's based off of the premise that uh oh, the moon just blew up. That's not good. Uh, humanity has sort of a ticking clock before the moon comes crashing down on Earth and sort of glasses the planet 
And it uses, it was written in 2015 and it more or less sort of uses a lot of technology that does or could reasonably exist around that time period in this sort of alternate telling of uh, what happens on Earth. So it's a more scientific take on assassination classroom? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of being a big yellow sort of octopus thing, the thing that initiates it is uh, a completely unknown event or the phenomena is this thing that they just decide to call the agent that could be literally just like a super high speed, high density projectile that hits the moon and blows it up. Uh, essentially starts the clock on it. And then humans have to figure out how to uh, keep the human race persisting or surviving after earth becomes uninhabitable on its surface for um, an unknown period of time, though it's it's assumed that it's going to be probably thousands of years. So right. it's pretty interesting. It's really good. I think the fact that it uses this like sort of scaling of technology as well, that it's just like, oh, at, at the point that the problem is presented, it's like the technology that they have is as good as what we have, if not maybe slightly worse. And so it's an interesting thought experiment in that sense. I mean, does does it analyze the, uh, I don't know if it's even a theory per se, but like the thought that if presented with a serious enough issue, humanity or civilization, society in general would actually work at a better rate of discovery and research. Because like, I, I think COVID was or has kind of shown a similar situation where like, we probably wouldn't have come up with, uh, well, I mean, the situation kind of demands it, I guess. But the idea is that, like, given the situation, obviously we need, we, as human, as like humankind would prioritize the discovery of new technology and research that would allow for a solution. So I take it, uh, it becomes a little more fantastic in nature as the, as the story goes. But so, yeah, the question, yeah, the question that you're asking ultimately. Um, I think is like if faced with an existential threat, does society do, do like people at large uh, come together to have uh, like maybe a more effective community when it comes to problem solving? Uh, I would say that it does explore that thought, and it also explores it in the sense too that uh, that also like that creates many different types of perspectives. Some being like ah, well, the world's fucked, I'm fucked. Like, you know, it. it is, is essentially a way to also confront someone with just like instantly being blackpilled when the moon blows up. Just like, well, I've got question mark days left in my life. Uh, you know, it, and it's over for everyone. So there is sort of a different, a different moral framework or um, motivating framework for individuals. But I think collectively, yeah, it absolutely, you know, addresses that. And I would say for the most part, like the technology doesn't get like super, there there are a couple of elements to it, I'd say that uh, it's like their technology is a little better or does better than what I feel like we could expect to be able to mount equivalently right now in 2021 versus when this book was written. Well, the book was published in 2015, which means it would have been written in the previous years to that. Right. And so it's like, there's actually a lot of things that have changed on that front. The big, 
the big question and I think like difficult factor when it comes to a lot of like sci-fi stuff as well is uh, and it's not something that I dislike or don't like I think is inappropriate for the medium but it, there is also always this assumption that like if you do science and research in a particular category you're guaranteed to have some sort of like growth in that protect particular like discipline or focus when oftentimes some of the biggest like technological leaps and bounds happen in like basic research or they're completely like coincidental like oftentimes some big breakthroughs that we have in science and technology is like you set out to do something and you discover something completely different like there's a lot of stuff that happens out of left field and that is sometimes the most impactful true um, sure. yeah because it's like one of those things when you go to explore something more deeply sometimes you crash into like some other principle or idea that you had that no one had ever thought of like completely deeply or that was just an assumption that we made that was wrong and it allows us as scientists uh or i should say as people in general to like completely recontextualize and reevaluate how we're interacting with something from like a technology scale but it's all i mean it's all essentially like uh, i'll give you the very simple premise that uh, the idea that comes up is obviously like well we can't we might not be able to put anything particularly substantial into space at this point so we need to just start like really beefing up the international space station which they nickname Izzy. And so it becomes like literally just Earth trying to ship out and set up as many people um, and as many things into space to live in space until the planet is habitable again. Wait, and do, do they tackle the idea of burrowing into the ground? They do. Okay. Yep. And they also tackle the idea of going to like the very depths of the bottom of the sea, like in those super deep trenches. So those ideas are also addressed, but it's like because you have uh, the pieces of the moon that would be striking the earth, uh, they, they call bolides, because you have them coming in and more or less recreating a bunch of meteor strikes that wiped out the dinosaurs uh, more frequently, more randomly, and at maybe equivalent or larger sizes. Well, I think maybe slightly smaller than that, actually. I'm trying to think... Either way, what we're talking about is like rocks of really high heat and mass smashing into the earth repeatedly for maybe thousands of years. The, you know, what is that going to do for water and like sea levels and whatnot? What is that going to do for actually the structural integrity of uh, being in the crust of the earth at all? Because the crust is still like, I can't remember how many miles deep it is, but the earth's crust is like, maybe five or 15. I feel like there's a five somewhere in the earth's crust depth. So you have to go pretty fucking deep to not be like at crust level. But, um, but if, if you have humans born in space outside of gravity, like, well, there, there's two implications that come up. The first one, they is, get all fucked up. Right. Exactly. The whole yeah. aspect of being born without gravity. So I'm assuming that's part of it. Yep. Part of the discussion. And then the other part is you start, you end up with a brand new type of human, the new type the new yes. type oh there oh man i think you'd really dig this like this book it it goes in all of these directions like all these things that you're positing are thoughts that get explored in the book which i think uh have made it such a delight because 
it is another one of those texts that I've gotten to where it's just like, oh, good. This idea that I had is somewhere in here. Maybe it doesn't show up immediately. But now that I'm pretty much done with the book, I can say like, oh, yeah, I, like this, this addresses all of the things that I'm sort of interested in and can think of as like either problems or solutions. And then what are the repercussions of those solutions? And it feels really good to have just that like really large sort of like dragnet of ideas all about just like, what if this particular type of existential crisis happens? I mean, there's a chunk in the book, right, where we're talking about you get to a point where you can't obviously get anything else from Earth. You can't go back to Earth. So now you're in this sort of like closed system in space because there's only so much that you can do living in space when it comes to acquiring uh, like the necessary resources for life and infrastructure and whatnot. And so it's, it's like Apollo 13 where they're like trying to fix, you know, the CO2 scrubbers. So the astronauts don't suffocate before they make it back to earth. But you have to think of that scene being like, they don't need to survive for like an extra eight hours. They need to survive for like, I don't know, X thousand number of years. So, all right. I, 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 have to ask the the very the very important Neil question when it comes to being recommended media. I, I know you said it. existential know, yeah. existential uh, problems or dilemmas, but what about existential dread? Does that exist? I mean, does existential not exist? Does existential dread not exist in every piece of media we consume, Neil? Uh depends. <laughs> I mean, like. There, there are stories that totally, uh, that totally make you feel super positive about, you know, your existence, without this, it, without necessarily addressing it. That this make you book feel, definitely feels like people are clawing tooth and nail to like make sure that humans continue to exist, it, and it definitely like it has some pretty, I'd say, critical turning points in in the book where it's just like you really have the question are they going to make it like am i going to get to the end of this book and it's it was a futile effort like or are you going to mass effect spoilers just throwing them out there mass effect spoilers are you going to have an epilogue where some alien is like oh look at this time capsule yes this is the story of the shepherd oh no <laughs> uh amazing i actually don't is that is that what they finally did for the fixed mass mass effect ending it's the uh it's the fourth ending that they added like if you if you decide to shoot the child the star child or you take too long to decide because fuck apparently you can't walk to one of the three solutions change your mind yeah and then walk back and go down another route uh, didn't know that at least I, I i'm pretty sure it's like if you take too much time deliberating uh the the implication is that your cycle you know because that's how it works with the reapers the cycles uh your cycle ends it's over and the next cycle or the next or what whatever one but some some time down the road they end up finding Liara's uh, time capsule that describes the events of what uh, what happens, and they ultimately find a solution. 
I mean, it's all bullshit. We all know the indoctrination theory is actually the correct it's path. It's canon, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it is fun to think, though, that you fail in your cycle, and then this alien that finds the time capsule is named, like, Lab uh, Shexpert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good game. It's... Yes. Yeah, good game, good book. So far, good book. I feel like it would have to work really hard. I, it is one of those things where it's sort of winding down now, and I, I don't know what the last 30 pages or so have, but they can't, like, I don't think that it can nosedive at the very end uh, without some, like, incredibly cringy deus ex machina sort of, inter- like, stuff going on. So I, I think I can confidently say, like, good sci-fi book enjoyed it quite a bit it will motivate me to read another book of this author's that i have that i just wasn't able to get into the first time because it's a lot mathier it's called anathema i have to real quickly address gizlek's comment that we all know the indoctrination theory is non-canonical actually so the if if you look at the writing staff within mass effect there's two stances you have one where you have a quote-unquote lore master, lore master, who has already lit plot hole after plot hole into fucking Mass Effect, uh, says that that was not intended. And then you have other people within the staff saying that at this point in time, uh, the people playing the games already have so many more theories that like we sh- it's really up to the player to decide you know, what they, how they feel about the game and what they want about the game. If they just so happen to just introduce like this very extremely plausible explanation that makes more sense than any other ending of the game, I think it's very, I think it's very suitable to consider uh, the indoctrination theory as a headcanon ending. Not to mention, too, if you look at Andromeda, everyone in Andromeda, I'm, ass- I'm assuming there's nothing that lets you turn on blue eye sparkles or, or green eye sparkles or whatever, but. Uh, mm-hmm. And in Andromeda, there are no characters that have like the green eye sparkly thing with the weird chip skin or whatever the uh, the PC board skin. So, um, at least if you if you want to be if you want to be uh, super nitpicky, Andromeda potentially takes place in a universe where the red ending or indoctrination theory uh, turn out to be canon. Who knows? Yeah, though that, that makes sense. One day I'll play Andromeda, and it'll be great. Or back on the other side, you know, because Andromeda takes place on the outskirts of the universe in Mass Effect. So there's the alternative that uh, you actually chose the green or the blue ending, and they're like, "Oh, you regular humans and whatnot, you're getting thrown out into the, you know, into the boonies. You're getting tossed into deep space. Let's see how you like it out there." But if if the Mass Effect relays or whatever are what allows for the effects of any of the changes to happen within uh within um uh the end of mass effect 3 like you would think it would still reach out that far if it was able to shoot a ship that far like incidentally you you think an incidental event or a not so incidental catastrophic event as the shattering of the the relays would also affect maybe these are things that are addressed within like the first five minutes of andromeda i don't know (laughs) still love that i don't remember there actually being any like super clear explanation as to how you activate a mass relay like what the exact thing is that's going on in the mass relay besides it's just like you 
all of a sudden lose mass. Like you just become really light so you can get, you know, slingshot across space. Is that it? I, I don't recall like any explanation it's just, at all. It's yeah, it's been a really long time. But yeah, that's why I think that's why they actually call it mass effect is like so they're working with essentially they're altering your mass. And that's how you're able to, you know, like hyper accelerate, right? Because if you have all of this, say, fuel, for instance, that you're using to, uh, you know, launch your ship and move its mass, if you reduce its mass, then you can essentially increase its speed relationship wise. So it's like the Normandy becomes light as a feather in space. And then that's why you go zip just off to the next spot. I, I like how... I like how that explanation makes perfect sense, but they also designed the relays to kind of look like guns. So, <laughs> so people, yeah. if, if they didn't want to think too hard about it, they're just like, oh yeah, we just kind of get you're shot getting rail out. Gunned. Yeah, yeah, you're getting railgunned. It's, uh, it's your like maglev train, but it's not like they just have one magnet that they start you with. There's no track after that. Per- perhaps uh, the Tesla um, tunnel... I don't remember what his freaking project was. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? How? Uh, I, I don't know if it was Tesla or, it, but it was one of like Elon Musk's companies was uh, working on a like a that tunnel stupid system. Tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Maybe they have to just look into some Mass Effect relays. Maybe that was the inspiration for it. It's it's a vacuum tube. Like it's literally the the technology or the idea that's being explored there is the same technology that you use when you used to put a bank. Uh, like put a check hmm. or a deposit slip in the bank tube and then that or i guess it's called a mail tube yeah it's all like that's just a vacuum system right it was like oh you've reduced all of the sort of like air pressure and resistance and now whoop, things will just like shoot to the other end of the tube I, I like how we have like a perfectly viable option or well, maybe maybe it's not viable because of some reason in like I'd love to see long tubes in space long tubes that the mass effect relays are actually just how you enter this sort of like hamster maze of (laughs) tubes throughout space and they shoot you from one end to the other well isn't China like I I think I think I saw a headline about China making some sort of space elevator so or like looking into the idea of uh shit let me double check real quick before I just spout out nonsense no, that's fine. I have some other uh, Chinese technology hearsay that I heard the other day that uh, it was like building under underwater tunnels, essentially, so they can build subs and then launch subs out into the ocean, but they never have to surface uh, anywhere that would be visible by like satellite uh, surveillance. So you essentially like have a sub, you build it in situ or whatever, and then it goes through an underground, you know, cave or tunnel system into the ocean at large, and then it never has to surface. So it's like those, you know, those Russian and uh, U.S. nuclear submarines that we have that like dive and then don't come up for ages. They're like self-sustainable, you know, little uh, platforms that can stay underwater for so long that it's like near impossible to track them or keep an eye on them world's just getting safer and safer makes me want to play Civ so you can have bloodthirsty Gandhi bloodthirsty Gandhi and his submarine army I well think... against my submarine army actually
just got to wait for the uh, the inevitable day where when we can transfer our consciousness into a computer or into a server. Yeah. Then get solar flared. Oh. That's the that's the thing I always think about. It is like I think you know it's like for people who get really into it being the solution to sort of like it's not even avoiding death, right? There are so many conversations or ideas. It's like teleporter theory, where it's like if you you know even if your exact mental state gets transferred, like is it still you? That uh, like ship of theseus i believe is the other other phrase for that philosophical thought but it's very funny it's just like oh yeah i'll go on this hard drive because that's never been a like we've never had any issues with hard drives having errors or losing data or getting corrupted even Uh, ssds have uh, a certain read and write failure issue so obviously it'd have to be like a raid setup that that is self-sustaining right Oh God, don't say RAID. We have one of our instruments at work runs on like a RAID zero setup and it crashes at least once or twice a year. It's awful. Isn't that because it's RAID zero? So like... I know nothing about that except for the fact that when I hear RAID, I think RAID zero, RAID zero means crash, means I have a really bad day at work. What you should be thinking of is our sponsor, RAID Shadow Legends. No, (laughs) joking. Uh, what have you been up to, Neil? We're like we're skimming on. We're talking about tangential gaming stuff. Is there yeah. anything else you want to get get off know. your chest before we talk gaming? Because I, I, I haven't done much else. I, I watched a TV show that I may have more to talk about later, and I enjoyed some good food at a place for brunch yesterday. I worked. Uh... Or, excuse me, not worked. I Sorry. Uh, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, I could have started with that. I worked on my acoustic guitar. It's, it's entirely playable now. There's some buzzing frets and stuff, but that's about mm-hmm. it. But, like, otherwise, just a lot of, like, real-life commitments and stuff that have kept me busy over the last week, so I haven't been playing or streaming as much as I would want. Um, at this point, I'm just kind of, you know, falling back into despair over having to go back to work. <laughs> I, I think yeah. I've got like enough of a mental recharge now, though, where I can try and be like a model uh, employee for now. So that's my hope that I can, uh, you know, go another six months without uh, taking a day off or anything like that. Actually, are there? Oh, the Fourth of July is coming up. We have an extended weekend coming up, right? Wait, what? What is the fourth yeah. fall on? It's on a Sunday, I believe. I haven't looked too closely, but I'm pretty sure it's a Sunday, which means it's a Monday off vacation. That's if uh, yep. that's if your workplace allows for it, of course. I don't know. I'm. Yeah, I mean, there are there are plenty of shitty. I think pretty much every like service job is one that will. Uh, if they do a Monday through Friday, I feel like every service job I've had has been like, yeah, you don't get the 4th of July off if it's not on the weekend. But m- most of the sort of like I, white collar jobs I've had, it's like if that holiday lands on a Saturday, you get the Friday off. If the holiday lands on the Sunday, you get the Monday off. We'll see about that. I mean, maybe your employer is uh, more generous than mine. My my employer is fairly generous. Mine that after having like a record breaking sales year decided to take one day away from us for our like winter break. Fucked up. That's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. yeah. So video games. Uh 
Let's save any VLR, VLR comments because I unfortunately uh, missed missed you play that um, until like I'd say maybe towards the end of the podcast. Oh man, yeah. Since well, there's okay, potentially some me, spoiler stuff there that we might talk about. Let me about. get this off my chest immediately. Big VLR, not really a big VLR spoiler, but VL, small VLR spoiler in the fact that it is, I finally got concrete confirmation that uh, that is Clover, the same Clover uh, in this Virtue's Last that, Reward That's kind game. of a big spoiler. I mean, to some okay. It's a character named Clover who looks like Clover, who has the same voice actress as Clover. And it's after like the first puzzle that she's like, yeah, I'm Clover. Uh, and talks about being in a desert earlier. This is not a big spoiler. I don't understand. It, it, it's a spoiler. It's a spoiler because uh, if someone's playing through 999, they might not know Clover survives. Oh. that's But that's... Uh, you know what? I never said uh, anything about 999. True, true. That's all conjecture. Uh, <laughs> are, are, you, are you happy to see uh, uh, Clover back? Why did they make Clover... They made Clover very different from the Clover I remember. This isn't my Clover. What happened to my daughter? <laughs> She's wearing scandalous outfits and uh, is trying to get us drunk when we're in the middle of a life or death situation. She looks like pebbles from the Flintstones, I think. She does. Yeah, it's weird. Honestly, I'm just like, okay, this is Clover now. Uh, it feels like a complete sort of 180 on the character I was familiar with in 999. But it makes sense, because she also, I guess, went through a very traumatic experience that's probably fairly life-changing. Well, let, let, let's just go ahead and go through it, since I think uh, anyone who, uh, who is worried is muted right now. So, what, uh, you, said, you said off-stream that you had faced the consequences of your choice. Yeah. In which case, you <laughs> got to your first Ambidex game, right? Yeah, I got to my first Ambidex game, and the way that it works in this game is you're essentially doing the prisoner's dilemma. You're voting whether you choose to ally or betray with someone, and then they are choosing whether they ally or betray with you. And the way that it works out is the best possible scenario, I believe, is to ally together. It like The greatest point yield goes to someone who betrays someone who allies them, but otherwise the like net positive outcome is the both ally option but everyone who has any brain at all is just like in the prisoner's dilemma it's important to be the betrayer because the betrayer gets the most points and you can't trust people to not betray you and so of course i said game i'm better than this i'm better than you i have morals and a backbone i would never do this what the fuck my partner betrayed me i knew i knew it was coming i i saw it coming a mile away um but I was still, still upset, still sad. And I think my favorite thing that they did about it is my character, Sigma, um, sort of a much hunkier uh, version of Junpei. Like, just overall a cooler dude, which makes me sad that he's not voice acted, but I guess it's because he's so cool they couldn't find a guy yeah. to be Sigma convincingly. Troy Baker so it has wasn't to available. Be- yeah, so it has to be my voice. Um, but Sigma is pissed about it. He's honestly very upset, and you don't 
similar to 999, you don't have like complete control over this character. You're able to nudge, the, nudge their decisions at critical moments, but otherwise they act as an independent sort of character that you're attached to. Right. And so it is very fun to have Sigma just be like, I allied you you absolute piece of shit like just so mad that he was betrayed which is completely reasonable and everybody's just like sigma you're an idiot it's the prisoner's dilemma everyone told you that it's important to betray people and sigma was like i thought we could be good people (laughs) so so did great did you instantly like reload and betray out of spite no, no, absolutely not. We're going all the way down. I'll also tell you this is I tr- I really try not to look at the flow diagrams at all while I go through them. It's really like I don't get into looking at flow diagrams until I've cleared like at least two endings or so. Um, but I did happen to just catch the flow diagram and I saw that the one that I'm currently on, if I play my cards right, is maybe the longest one that exists out of the flow chart because it essentially shows you dialogue box and then uh or not not dialogue box it shows you essentially events or discrete moments in the story that have a question mark if you haven't reached them yet otherwise there's a quick like little summary or breakdown like is this dialogue is this an escape room like is this a decision point for the ambidex game and looking at it that way i know that i have potentially a fairly like interesting path ahead of me because there are more question mark blocks ahead of me than almost any other path i could have taken and so i'm interested to see what that means and that's not always like the game is also not necessarily open or honest in the sense that when you play 999 minor spoilers for the mechanics of 999 or um like i the somnium files there are things there are pathways that you can't necessarily see until you get them or you unlock them so there's no way for me to know for certain like will this remain the longest one my assumption is no there will be a different route ultimately when i get it all done but i will say i'm incredibly daunted by how many different paths exist with this one yeah, it, it's definitely more expansive than 999. And uh, in 999, as you also found out, you don't have to go through each... Like, you only have to go through one path, I think, uh, before you actually can finish the game. Whereas this one, it's like, if that's the case, out of the... You probably could see, like, four or five different routes at this point. Like, which one do you need to go down? Which one I can see it? like 12 routes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess, can see I guess more routes more. than there are people. Yeah, it's insane. So, so I'm, cu- I'm curious about that. There's also some little mention that happens. I feel like it's in the intro, but it's like the, uh, the events that like... It's, it makes some sort of very vague reference to like things that happen in one timeline might affect another, which is another thing that is like really common with these games now that I've played them, is sort of information that is only really obtainable uh, through the idea of multiple playthroughs and the player having this sort of omniscient view and being able to, you know, fourth wall absorb information from different situations. I don't know if it means the same thing where it's like Sigma may have an epiphany at some point in time where he accesses the morphogenetic field and once again knows something he shouldn't technically know. 
because there is already references to other characters maybe having that happen where they like know something but they don't know why they know it or how they know it yeah. I'm interested to see what those elements are specifically. I, I, I would say like at, at this point in time, you've already played I, you've played 999 now and with VLR, I get it's a the gimmick. Of, yeah, it's like, you, you know what the gimmick is. So it's like, it, it would be if, if I were in your position, I would say it's safe to assume that like the morphogenetic field is going to be brought up someplace. It's yeah. coming up somewhere, but but so, the color uh, system is much harder for me to get than the digital root system. I remember you explaining the digital root system initially and me thinking, that sounds kind of hard. Like It's going to take me a long time to wrap my head around it. And then in actuality, it's, it's really quite basic and easy. Like yeah. I never used the calculator for the digital root. Uh, I could just do it in my head, no problem. But this color system is a little bit trickier. You, you have the pair and solo mechanics where... There is there are three colors that get put on your bracelets, and then you have uh, the second designation of either being a solo bracelet or a pair bracelet. So pair bracelets need to stay together when you go through doors, and solo bracelets have essentially the freedom or flexibility for just one person to decide to go somewhere. But that breaks it down where you always have groups of three that can go through a location. And then the color thing is a little weird because you either pair colors together using subtractive light theory to, um, or just the principles of subtractive light versus additive light, which we all know from like our art color wheels when you put colors together in paint. Uh, subtractive light theory is the more colors you put together. Uh, like if you put every color together, you get white as opposed to if you put every color together, you get black. So putting certain light colors over one another will actually reduce them to like primaries in a way that you can't make a primary from secondary colors with additive color theory. Um, so you can make it using these pair and solo combinations, but also you can get the counter color, essentially the complement. but they're using colors that are not ones that I'm familiar completely with the complement, like green and magenta are a complement pair. And then I can't remember what blues complement is. It's just, it gets a little tricky for me. It's harder for me to figure out. Blues would be yellow. Yeah, you're right. Which, which if you were going off of paint theory, if you will, it's I'm just orange. Gonna, yep, it's orange. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, they're, they're just slightly different. Like they, uh, those colors are, also going to be more familiar to people that handle printers like ink printers because they oh yeah use... there's a cmyk yep exactly yeah. so it, it, it yeah it's kind of weird to get familiar with and, and to i mean like the way i view it is that like the game's never going to get so strict with you about knowing the the color relations it's really just a justification at least in my opinion over limiting you to a certain number of combinations to get through doors like mm -hmm. just like how the digital root system in 999 is really just a, a plot device to make sure you can only go through certain doors with certain characters i think i think but uh mm -hmm. but are we done with a uh, vlr spoiler talk for now the rabbit has a great uh really great voice actress yeah she, she's fantastic 
Zero the third, I think, or whatever. I call them Zero Junior now. Oh, yeah. Zero. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. All right. VLR spoiler talk over. Um, outside of, uh, outside of that, what have you been playing? More Darkest Dungeon. No big movements on that. Uh, Matt gave me his, uh, preferred strategy which is you upgrade your wagon and you start just you know throwing uh adventurers through the meat grinder and it does seem to work pretty well for the most part every like every once in a while i get an adventurer or uh an explorer who has like upgraded weapons and uh skills and it's really really nice because otherwise if you do that from someone who starts at zero it's very expensive you could spend like 10,000 gold or something on it so getting to pick someone up for free who has a lot of their stuff i picked up a grave robber i think that had level 2 uh like weapon and armor and then level 3 skills and all of the skills combat skills not camping skills and i'm just like holy shit this is like 15,000 gold that i've just saved as opposed to investing in a brand new grave robber that I got. So that's been great. I'm definitely going to be using that uh, more. It just feels bad. It, I, it's still really hard for me to be like, uh, you know, well, this character has suit, served me well for like one or two dungeon dives. Like I want to keep them around and keep them alive, but they just keep like racking up negative quirks or they're just not able to like compete with another maybe slightly lesser leveled like resolve level character and it's just like but i invested in them i should keep them around right it's yeah it's really hard to look at their sort of contributions in the very black and white like accounting method which is just like well ultimately you're suboptimal compared to this new person i can pick up so i'm just going to discard this hero i have a uh, what do they call it? I can't remember now. It's the it's essentially the like Eldritch, uh, the occultist. That's what it is. I have an occultist named uh, Tybalt, and Tybalt, like in clutch situations, has just like he's had uh, those like virtue. Uh, yeah, when he's been put to the hundred stress, like broken to virtue several times now. I'm just like. This man is amazing. He can't be broken. And he also just has like a stupid high dodge. So he's just, it's great. Like he has been a huge contribution to the team. And I just can't imagine placing like my dear Tibble, like kicking him off of the roster or putting him to the side for someone else. But it's probably going to happen. I, I think Darkest Dungeon plays with a cool, like the cool game design that if you let yourself get sentimental. It makes it the gets game harder. harder. Yeah. Yeah. Do is there a release window for Darkest Dungeon 2? I don't think that is potentially what it's actually being called, but I know like it's already been teased. We've seen like some it, Yeah, it was teased like a it. year ago maybe yeah. even. Um it could be a while. I don't have any extra details though. Yeah, but I, I did pick up I, I think I had mentioned I picked up the DLCs for this time around that I'm playing it. All of them except for maybe the Crimson Court one. And uh that adds like vampire mechanics and whatnot. So I'll probably add it a little later, but just with the farmstead and some of the additional uh, adventurer types, I still have yet to get a musketeer, for instance, which is just like a reskinned arbalest, but it's still, I don't know, it's fun. 
uh, to have that reskin. I, I could yeah. be wrong, but from what Tiffany was telling me, you can you can add you can add the Crimson Court without enabling it. Mm, mm-hmm. But if I'm not mistaken, if you do add it, you can still kind of avoid it avoid getting involved in it i think i think you may end up picking up items that are specific to that dlc which could be taking up you know discoveries of items that you would otherwise have for resources so what, what i mean is that like yeah you find a chest and you could find an item specific to the dlc which if you haven't triggered that event yet you wouldn't necessarily need it Use but that would be all, taking yeah. up the opportunity cost of having you know emblems or scripture or whatever the heck else you can find that refers to yeah. a, a resource but i mean I, I i don't think it would necessarily hurt you too much if you added it mm, uh, okay but. yeah it's uh it's been really fun i've enjoyed it a lot i've never uh had a save file in which i have killed the collector every time they show their ugly face in my dungeons Every time I bump into the collector, I'm just like, okay, we're going all out. Like, if I barely survive the fight and I have to retreat right afterwards, so be it. But this collector's going down. So, uh, and and so you are way more willing to just accept losses with your yeah. I'm trying to be more and more reckless because it actually seems to come it, like it, it it does work to your advantage in some ways i think like yeah. that cautiousness really does seem to make it like you hit this stasis point i've noticed like the gold that you're getting out of it, an interaction and sort of the like stress damage and trinkets that you're pulling out of a less risky mission almost like are completely consumed or used by uh, whatever sort of repair and upkeep that you have to do when you get back to town versus I've done a couple of times where I just throw some people like without torches into a dungeon and they come back with like over 10,000, uh, you know, gold in their loot. And then a, so many items that I have to like start tossing them on the ground because I don't have room in my inventory. And then you kick all four of those guys out because they're all like broken. They're all shambles. fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Except for Tybalt, who has uh, decided to have another virtue and crits every time he does an Eldritch pull. Do you have any interest in playing the game mode that actually limits the number of weeks you have to play? Ooh, I've heard of that. I don't think so, because I was looking at another playthrough of mine where it was like I had never touched the Darkest Dungeon before, and I was like, oh, I would have failed already yeah. on the easiest mode. So, probably not. Oh, man. I'll have to get back to that game at some point. I, I like using the sequels as a reason to like motivate myself to play. Because yeah. it's like, I have a reason to get through this because if I want to play like the new game, so to speak, so I might put it off for, for a while. I agree with you, Bob. I, I'm usually the type of person that doesn't want to be rushed by uh, by like some sort of counter or timer. Though, speaking of, uh, speaking of, of counters... I've been playing XCOM 2 on stream uh, quite a bit. And that game, uh, similarly, also has has DLC that uh, is a little more dangerous if you encounter or choose to participate in said DLC before you're prepared to. Uh, Yeah, and and the, the turn counters in XCOM 2 on both sides. So... 
I guess I'll I'll really I I don't have to go into it too much because obviously I've been streaming it. It's out there. It's in you know people know what the experience has been like. But I I do want to say that game is probably I think it's way more punishing than uh, the the original reboot. I'm playing this game on the second difficulty, which is like veteran, and I played the XCOM reboot on classic, which uh, which is like the third difficulty of, of the of the initial four. I don't know if there's another one. Um, I'm more or less Iron Manning it. I, I I don't know where you enable Iron Man, but I'm you know. But you're doing it. Although technically, uh, on the DLC missions, I restarted. I re- I got like a game over state in the DLC mission. But that's because, like, if you lose that mission, you don't go back to your your screen or like your overview, and you can't just like try it again, so to speak. It was effectively like a game over, game over. So, um, so I'm giving myself some leeway there. Uh, but uh, but in the uh, original XCOM reboot, it it really felt like once you got a character up a few ranks or levels or whatever you want to say, they basically became way more impervious to like the random whoops deaths right but in Mm -hmm. this game i'll have like my highest ranking officer just happen to be just a bit too close to an enemy and bam one hit one hit from a stun rod crits dead a stun rod you know a device that you use to stun people incapacitate (laughs) them non-lethally bam eight damage dead right there too much too much water in their body (laughs) whoops should have been more dehydrated when you took the stun rod but uh i i i think i have some problems with like the 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 xcom reboots in terms of how they function uh like the the game system as a whole i've i've noticed that even on this pc which is i i think more than adequate to run run it there is some weird hangups here and there and just how how the game functions like if you discover a run into enemies they essentially get like a free movement turn where they kind of just like scramble into position when like you're not necessarily given the same yeah the same when someone breaks into your line of sight unless you have an overwatch up right there's no reaction that's being taken right so so there i i don't know it's not i'm not saying that the game's necessarily unfair but you have to learn where your advantages are versus theirs whereas in like the mm-hmm. original XCOM, and I, I i know it's i'm beating a dead horse by comparing it to the original game uh the original games which by all means were like unfair in different ways mm-hmm. obviously but but in those games like there was a degree of understanding that you very quickly came into came to accept like uh you know alien vision is better than your vision just mm-hmm. accept it. There are aliens, you know, uh, and if they see you, they'll shoot you. There's rea- like what what I'm getting at is I don't necessarily think XCOM two or the reboot are necessarily that uh, that unfair, but it, there is like a learning curve where you have to kind of figure out how the game functions, especially if you haven't played it in a while where you're going to look like an idiot because you don't know certain aspects of the game, like whether or not opening a door takes a turn or whether or not uh, doing a special command will take a turn or things like if you have both of your turns up when you shoot, you have better accuracy than if you reload or do one of your one-turn actions and then shoot, that sort of stuff. Uh, but overall, overall, like I think XCOM 2 compared to the 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 2014 or 2012 reboot whenever that first one came out uh enemy unknown i think it's like 
taken a step in a much better direction. Like it feels like characters are vulnerable, which I think is very important to the the feel of XCOM. And the lack of being able to multitask makes way more sense because instead of having instead of being like the one the one organization hired by humanity to save the world, you are now like a resistance. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, it sucks that I can't tackle two of these missions at the same time. And that was a very valid uh, issue I had with the, uh, the first reboot. But in this game, it makes sense. You're one resistance force. You don't have the, utili- or the utility. You don't the have resources. the resources to actually go and tackle two missions at once. It's like there's only limited time. You have one mobile base that has to travel around the world. So it you know it makes sense, uh, but yeah. So so far, mostly only positive things to say about that game. I'm but, honestly just feeling awful thinking about a game like Fire Emblem, where when you get into range on an enemy unit, that they can just like scramble. That it just feels so rough to be like, but wait, you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be here. Come back. <laughs> I don't want to waste another turn getting up to you. Right. It's just like with with that mechanic in mind, it just makes you play a different way. So I've become like ultra conservative. So I will move people, especially when you're concealed. Like I will just move people all around and try and like get multiple angles, but also try not to expose too much of the map because you're at a huge disadvantage if you can actually see the aliens, because then that means they automatically can see you once you leave concealment, you know, stuff like that. You have to, yeah, they'll they'll target you. You have a greater amount of, uh, aggro and whatnot i'm think i would have guessed that it would make you more aggressive though in the fact that you're like pushing the aliens back to some degree right and allowing you to sort of set up a new a new like front line yeah it's kind of a it's kind of rough when they (laughs) when they move so ridiculously far like all right, they're mm-hmm. in this hallway. Oh, suddenly they're out in the main hall now. This this other c- completely different room. <sighs> did did you end up finishing uh, XCOM or XCOM Two? I never played them ever. Oh, okay. So uh, the closest thing I played to, I mean, I played like the first level of one of the XCOM reboots. I think at Matt's place years and years and years ago, uh, and I did really bad. I don't think I succeeded at it. Um. <laughs> But actually, is it scripted? I feel like maybe it's scripted that you get absolutely squashed in one of them. But my memory fails me. I played uh, that troubleshooter game, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. if it didn't have that really... It just has a really awful UI before you get into the actual combat. And there's so much of that awful UI to deal with that I couldn't... Like, I went back to play again later now that... You know, I have a completely upgraded sort of processor and GPU and whatnot. And the game looked pretty good, but that UI just feels like shit. It's so tedious and frustrating to deal with that um, I just like, I can't get back into it. But otherwise, I enjoyed the gameplay style. So XCOM is probably the better choice for me if I want to experience that kind of game again. And they, they go on sale, I think, relatively frequently. So if you wish list it, you'll probably find. Yeah. I mean, I, I would recommend uh, making sure it looks like the right game for you. Like, I don't think the UI is necessarily super great in some cases. Um, like, it, 
I, I, I don't know. I, this isn't necessarily a huge negative. I just feel that, like, uh, having played a few of these games, I feel like they could have maybe improved upon the UI for XCOM 2 a little more than Enemy Unknown. Mm-hmm. But, uh, because XCOM 2 kind of feels more like a. It, it could have been like the Brood War, I guess you could say, to, uh, to uh enemy unknown if that makes sense like a lot of a lot of the game functions and feels very similar but like there's certain elements that sort of get a facelift but for the most part it kind of feels just like it there's more content and classes have been changed in such a way that like you can see the original structure and the game itself doesn't operate too differently but i don't know I'm actually looking up Troubleshooter again. That's like the anime XCOM, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like it's like uh, I think it's made by a South Korean developer, I believe. It sort of has like it also has like an online or like multiplayer function that I haven't really interacted with very much. That almost feels MMO esque, but I'm not the person to really talk about that because I know so little about MMOs. Um, and people just have like on top of like regular combat, they sort of have like psychic abilities that they're using or whatnot. Psionic abilities, eh? Oh, I actually already have this wish listed apparently, huh? Yeah. So it's just it's just the UI. Like just make sure that you're familiar with and uh happy with using so many menus and options and intricacies uh to I think have a really like customizable experience. It's just it's it's a little too much for me. I get overloaded by it. The way the uh, the description is uh, written for Troubleshooter, it makes it sound like Troubleshooter, as opposed to Troubleshooter Abandoned Child, which is like the full title, is an unexisting IP of some sort. Oh, interesting. But I, I, know I don't that. know if that's true or not. But, hmm. What uh, what else have you been playing? Mm, yeah, when I look up troubleshooter, I find uh I find a a scrolling uh shooter called Battle Mania from 1991. So I don't think they're the same thing. It's the same so it's world. probably not that. It's the same game. I wonder if it's like a manhwa or something. Manhwa oh, is that the Korean? Yeah, yeah, that's totally possible. Hmm. But again, it, it could just be that like uh, the that the description is written in such a way that it's not intending to to uh, give off that implied nature. But it, it says specifically, "Troubleshooter: Abandoned Children" is the first season of a turn-based strategy SRPG that takes place in the world of Troubleshooter. So when you say it like that, I'm like. What's the, the world the, of in the larger cinematic universe of Troubleshooter? Yeah, which has currently one game existing in it. I, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It'll get bigger. I they're confident that Troubleshooter is gonna gonna strike it rich. But uh, have you been playing anything else you want to talk about? No, and I f- I feel very daunted seeing that thirty to forty hours for Virtue's Last Reward. How long was nine 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 for you? That's a good question. Let's pull up Steam. Let's Ta- consult the old Steam logs. No spoilers. Oh, just uh, but, just the time. 
Uh, the problem is, is it's going they're to bundled give me together. Yeah, bundled. But I, I can probably shave off two to three hours for Virtue's last reward because I don't know if I've played too much more than that. And I'm sitting at twenty two point four hours right now. Oh, so wow. I was under twenty for sure for nine nine nine. I think I need to not do the auto advanced dialogue, but I like listening to the voice actors. It's just it's pretty slow. But but that's part of the experience. So if if uh, I think my Steam counter for those games is uh, sixty something hours. So if I spent twenty ish hours on a uh, nine nine, then maybe forty on VLR. But let's also be clear that uh, I'm I'm known for leaving games open and going and getting dinner and coming back six hours later. <laughs> so that could uh, be artificially increasing that counter. I mean that's good at least, yeah. But uh, uh, I don't think I have anything else I want to get into or talk about. I watched The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, with Tiffany a few oh, days ago. Shit, and that's uh, um, oh, what's that? Up? That triggers a memory for me. I Ashley and I were trying to kill some time before floating the river yesterday, and we didn't have enough time to watch uh, the show that I'll probably talk about on an upcoming episode. So we just put on Jeopardy for like two rounds or yeah, two episodes of Jeopardy real quick. And there was this paralegal named Matt who uh, (laughs) is an absolute character. It's essentially like the first two episodes that come up on Jeopardy. If you search for it on Netflix, I believe Um, it just reminded me of that because Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort was a question on uh, one of the categories, but this Matt guy absolutely one of the most entertaining people i've seen um completely uh not on purpose just like there is a moment that had me gasping because they introduce him as the champion from the first like jeopardy episode that we watched and he has a smile creep over his face in about a 10 second arc on camera and it goes from like it's like nothing changes above his mouth like his eye line yeah and so it's just (laughs) and he's just looking directly into the camera it is it's horrifying and i know our listeners can't appreciate it but i essentially tried to draw from a completely shut mouth like the corners of my mouth slightly upwards without changing any any other element of my face and then just showed the smallest of teeth um incredibly climactic horrifying and also matt's a monster he's there to he's he's out for blood he's there to kill he doesn't wait to like move on to the next question so if he answers something and gets it right he will literally just steamroll into the next thing before alex trebek can even ask him like uh you know uh it's your it's your turn matt or it's your pick and there's finally at one point in time he's like you gotta slow down matt we need to cut to commercial uh (laughs) just like jazzizing him how many how many pills of adderall do you think he took before the uh taping of those episodes I really have no idea. Him and I have the same dead brown eyes. So I feel a lot of like, I feel a lot of kinship with Matt, but I'm also scared of Matt because he's the more powerful version of, uh, of my kin. I just think that if he's like, if he's rushing to each question, wait, wait, so I'm moving so slow for Matt. Yeah, exactly. Would he, would he give the next category without, uh, waiting to see if his answer was correct? He was like, right. Who is it Napoleon? Is as, uh, we'll take famous rap artists for 300. 
Yeah, yeah, almost to that level. But yeah, he uh, he waits to figure out if he gets a yes. But it's like, as Alex Trebek is saying, that's uh, core. Like if he says that's core, Matt is like, all right, 400 for <laughs> whatever this other category is. Like, uh, yeah, the yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just absolutely nuts. He's just just probably on like some sort of thrill high, if you will. Yeah, or he's just that guy in the office that you cringe really hard when he like comes up to your your desk or your cubicle. But it's hard to tell. I mean, I want to I want to give him all of the benefits of the doubt. Um he seems like a nice guy, but is maybe one of the most intense human beings I've ever seen in front of a camera in my life. Uh truly stunning. Oh my god, that's right. <laughs> my favorite moment. <laughs> I almost feel like you have to watch both of these, but I'll try and I'll try and distill one last thing that actually had me uh, almost collapse because I was so surprised <laughs> and delighted. Is he had the same sort of creeping smile the second time? Like we got to the third episode uh, in that chain, and so Matt had won twice now, and he does the same slow creeping smile, and then you know less than a second before the camera cuts away from him he quickly pops up a little peace sign in the frame <laughs> and widens his smile and i i nearly died because i did not see it coming whatsoever from his just the complete personality that he had cultivated or displayed over the previous two episodes how did he win that episode too i was stunned i didn't get far enough we like yeah, we were we were once again just trying to kill time before another event. So it was one of those where we got to see that uh, Matt was still cruising, but it was not. He was not out of the woods. He did not secure the victory yet. But I truly don't know. Like, does this become some sort of progressive gag where he does something more and more extreme every time he's reinvited back? As he continues to crush these other nerds in the game of Jeopardy. I wonder if he wins enough to be considered like one of the champions of champions. Like the Ken Jennings level? Yeah, or maybe not to the same degree. But like Ken maybe. Jennings is a different, yeah, different thing altogether. But I mean, you can, you can tell his ferocity. This man on the clicker, you can just like tell. He's like repeated, just like mashing the clicker when it's time to uh, give an answer. And he's reckless. I respect it a lot. He's one of those people that will absolutely go in the hole and then immediately climb right back out of it. Just like going for the gamble. It d has it been close for the, the two you've seen? The first one was fairly close at the start. Um, if I remember correctly, he might have actually been the person who went in the hole like negative a thousand at the start of the game or something. But he, he climbed out with like 20,000 at the end of that one, roughly. And then he was at 35,000 the next one. So, I, I mean, Matt's, Matt's coming out swinging at the end of it. I think he's, he's my hero. An American paralegal and former contestant on the syndicated game show Jeopardy, who is known for winning, I won't tell you how many. Oh! Don't look it up. You're going to spoil it for yourself. Uh, uh, that's, well... Uh, <laughs> Matt Jackson, Paralegal Jeopardy. Apparently, he is a big deal because I type it. I type Matt Paralee and I get Matt Paralegal Jeopardy. Matt Jackson, Paralegal Jeopardy. Like, I won't go any further. I didn't see any details, but the fact that he pops up for Matt Paralee means that he is. This man's a star. Indeed. Graduated it, from Yale. Does it, 
Does it motivate you to uh, watch Matt's episodes now? I'm sure there's going to be a compilation of Matt Jackson Jeopardy. Amazing. Why that is watch really exciting cool to episodes hear and see. when you can just do like a five minute best of where it's every week. Best of Matt. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if there's anything else I need to really go into or talk about. No, that's good but. for me. Shout out to Matt's everywhere. <laughs> So, guys, thank you very much for listening. That was episode eight of Tangential Advisory Podcast. Episode name, Matt Jackson. Episode name in honor of Matt Jackson. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Until then, uh, en- enjoy, enjoy your weeks. Have a lovely time.